This is something which is often not spoken about oddly um, in churches, even in reformed churches, which is strange because it's a bit like reading a book, a novel, and not being fussed to find out what the end of the story is. At the end of the Christian story is, is the final state. Um, and unfortunately, even, even in, in reform circles, and even in our hymns often, the whole focus is, is on what is known as the intermediate state. That is, what happens to us if we die before the second coming of Christ, which is that we go to heaven, uh, without our body, we, we go as a soul, we're in the presence of God, our body remains in the grave. Um, Paul speaks of this as falling asleep. Um, and often this is presented as the great hope of being a Christian. And this is a great mistake and it's a wonderful thing, of course. Paul says it's far better to be with the Lord. But that is not the end. That is not the final hope of the Christian. And there is a far too much of an emphasis or, or a shortcut in the description of, of Christian hope is become a Christian so that you can go to heaven. Well, that, is not the, that is not what the Bible is saying at all. The final hope of the Christian is entering in to the new heavens and the new earth, a glorified, resurrected body. That is the true hope of the Christian. And to be in a world, a new world, wherein dwelleth nothing, but righteousness. And so, I want just to explore, um, and this is a Bible study tonight, all of these are Bible studies, which means you have to work just as hard as me, because I can't entertain you, and I can't entertain the doubts of the chickens um, So this is a joint enterprise, because this, some of this is not easy. Peter, Peter was saying about how difficult Paul's writings can be to understand. I'm not sure that was, I think that's um, the pot cattle, calling the cattle black. <laughs> Peter has some really difficult things. And so, let's, let's begin. The first thing I want to say in terms of how Peter describes the flood in, in, in 2 Peter 3 is that the flood was an act of in the first place it was an act of God <coughs> decreating the world and then recreating the world and this mirrors and matches very much what will happen at the end of time Peter speaks about this decreation of the world through fire, everything will um, melt, the elements will melt, the fervent heat, heavens will pass away. It's almost like everything that's created is, is deconstructed. And this is what happened also in the flood. Um, Peter speaks in, 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 in verses 5 to 7 of 2 Peter 3 of this decreating aspect of God's work 
in the flood judgment. It reads, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water, perished. In many ways the flood is like the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, all over again. We read in Genesis 1 verse 2 how the earth was formless and void. And in Genesis 7 verses 17 to 24, again the world becomes formless and void. Let's just read Genesis 7, 17, following. And just keep in mind that verse in Genesis um, 1, 2, as we read this. It says, And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased, and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth. And the ark went upon the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. You see, the earth, in a way, returns to that void, that formlessness that we read of in the beginning chapter 1 of Genesis. And again, Genesis 1 verse 2, we read of the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. That word spirit being ruach, which can either be translated spirit or wind. And in Genesis 8 verse 1, the second part of, um, of that verse, we read that God made a wind, made a wind to pass over the earth, made a ruach to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. How similar again that first creation is to this decreating and recreating. And it's this physical correspondence between the creation and the flood that Peter is emphasizing in his verses 5 to 7 in 2 Peter 3. Um, how the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. He speaks of the way the flood waters overflowing the earth transformed its appearance into something very similar to that deep darkness that we read of in the early stages of creation, Genesis 1, verse 2. We read of the merging of the waters of the heaven above and the deep below in the flood. We remember in the first creation, there was no separation between the waters. It was just one big soup, if you like. And there seems to be a return to that. And we read of this in, in chapter 7, Genesis 7, 
verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day, where all the fountains of the great deep broken up. So waters coming up from below, and the, water, and the windows of heaven were open. So rain, waters coming from the top as well. Water coming up, water coming down. That separation is gone. Merging of the waters. Chapter 8, verse 2, we read the same thing. It says, The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And so we have this return to a mixture of the, of, of the waters below and the waters above that obtained when earth was still in chaos without form and void. And so in the flood, in a way, God is decreating, he's bringing the earth back to what it was like before creation, or the, at least in the early stages of creation. And this, Peter says, will be something very similar to what will happen in the last day. When they, not by water this time, but by fire, the universe, the, the cosmos will melt, it will fade, it will flee, it will be deconstructed, uncreated. But out of that decreation, in the same way as happened with the flood, there comes a recreation. It is God decreating the world bringing it back to Genesis 1 verse 2, but then recreating the world. And this we read of, of course, in the flood, firstly. We read how um, very similar to, to, to the first creation, in, in verse 2 of chapter 8, how God separates the waters fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. God stopped the flow, the gushing of the water from below and restrained the torrents of water from above, enabling again the waters to be separated. That very much matches, doesn't it? The, the, the second day of creation in chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 of, of chapter 1. I won't go through all of that, I just want to give you an idea of how this works. And there it says, God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. God gives this separation, this shape, this structure to the cosmos. And in the flood, he, he, he took that back to, to the drawing board, if you like. But then he recreates it again. He makes it new. Um, 
In Genesis 8, again, um, as this develops, we see the emergence of the land. Um, first the mountaintops are, appear in, in verse 3 uh, of chapter 8. It says, uh, And the waters return from off the earth continually, and after the end of the 150 days the waters were abated, and the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And this very much matches what we read of in the first creation, how the lower land um, emerges with vegetation. Um, the land structure become formed out of the waters and God creates land. And this corresponds, as I say, to the third day of creation with the, with the bounding of the seas, the appearance of dry land and the bringing forth of plant life. And again, the flood, all that was hidden with the water that it gradually emerges just the tops of the mountains to begin with of course but then over time the land emerges from the waters um, days five and six I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this these correspondences but they're they're numerous but days five and six of creation um, correspond to chapter eight of Genesis verses 15 to 19 where the ark emerges onto the dry land with living creatures of all kinds and these, these creatures multiply the earth and man is given exactly the same cultural mandate as it's called um, to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth you read exact, almost identical words in, in chapter 9 uh, verse 1 uh, of Genesis as in the original mandate that God gave man in chapter 1 of Genesis. God recalls, reinstitutes the original order of creation through the day-night sequence. Of course in the flood it was all in darkness. But the cycle of the seasons were restored. Um, in this new world that would emerge from the waters. God said, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. God recalls, as it were, the, the great light um, that governs the day and governs, and the great light that governs the night. Um, very similar to the first creation we have in the end. God taking great pleasure in his world. God looked upon all he had created and saw that it was very good. Um, in verse 31 of Genesis 1. And in chapter 8, verse 20 and 21 of Genesis, we have God taking great pleasure in the sweet smelling aroma of the sacrifice that God that Noah gave to God and God takes pleasure he looks upon his work 
and takes great pleasure in it. So what's the point of going through all of that and missed out an awful lot? What is the main point? What's God trying to say here? Through these correspondences, these similarities between this recreation after the flood and the first creation. Well, according to Peter, among other typological meanings, Noah's flood is a type of the cosmic decreation that will take place at the end of time. He teaches that there will be a world cataclysm that is so great that a recreation will be necessary. And we read that, and we've read it already in 2 Peter 3, uh, verse 10. We just briefly read some of it again. That the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. But just as with the flood, the dissolution of the world that now is will be the occasion of a wonderful new world, a wonderful new creation, which Peter again speaks of in chapter 3, in verse 13. The recreation in this, what emerges out of the decreating activity of God is this, verse 13. It says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So God will, in whatever way he will do it, will burn everything up with fire. It will melt, it will fade, it will flee. He will decreate, but out of that what emerges? A new heaven, new heaven. And a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That is known as the final state. The new heavens and the new earth is viewed in Scripture as decreation followed by recreation. And it's our hope. It's far more than become a Christian and if you die you go to heaven. That's a massive underestimate of the Christian life. Our hope is a new heaven and a new earth, a new body glorified, as we'll go on to see. Secondly, um, the new heavens and the new earth um, the ushering in of this final state is a picture, well it's not a picture, that is the, that is the fulfillment, but it's typ typified by the flood story in terms of the consummation of the kingdom of God. And this will take a bit of explaining, I hope I don't lose you on this bit, which I fear I might. But try and remember some of the things I was saying in the earlier parts of, of this series about how the plan of God right from the beginning for Adam and Eve was not just for them to remain in the garden. The plan was for Adam and Eve to obey 
the instruction not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also to fulfill what's known as the cultural mandate to, to fill the earth and replenish the earth and to multiply. And as we said, if, if Adam had fulfilled all of that, if Adam and Eve had obeyed God, there would have come a point where the new heavens and the new earth would have come into being without the need of salvation, without the need of the cross. Um, there would at some point, God would, heaven and earth would have joined in some kind of royal temple. The final cosmic consummation of the kingdom of God would have taken place. Well now man has fallen. Salvation is necessary. So what is the consummation now? The consummation of the kingdom of God now is the new heaven. The new heavens and the new earth. And in the ark, in the ark, and this is where I want us to understand, it is as if we go back to Genesis and man is given the cultural mandate before the fall to build the kingdom of God, or as is often called the city of God. That cultural mandate to fill the earth is pictured here in the ark. The ark is like a, like a temple, it's like a royal temple of God that would have come in if Adam had fulfilled the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now I need to explain why I think that. The first thing is, and here we're looking at Genesis 6 really, um, and um, verse 14 following notice that this is a very strange way to build a ship to build a boat um, make me an ark of gopher but that's ok and then it says rooms shall thou make in the ark Verse 16, and you'll make a door, uh, and there'll be three stories. Um, verse 16, and a window shalt thou make to the earth. This is built more like a house than a boat. Um, it really didn't look, in many ways, like a boat. It was seaworthy, but it's built like a house. Uh, it didn't look like a vehicle that would deliver God's people through the flood waters. Um, and so, this boat, this ark, this house-like looking vessel, in typology, typifies God's temple, God's house, God's city, God's consummated kingdom. 
And this isn't the only place this happened. This also happened in Israel's tabernacle. It also happened in Israel's temple. And it's obvious by the design of the ark that this too was to be a symbolic representation of the consummated kingdom of God. I told you this bit was hard. You see, the ark is built as a house. It has three stories, it has a door, it has a window. The three stories corresponding to the heavens above, the earth below, and the waters underneath. Even the threefold classifications of the, of the animals in the ark are just like they were in the beginning. The birds, the cattle, the beasts, and, and the creeping things. And this mirrors the cosmic um, house of creation which we spoke about. And this ark is like a mini, a mini house of creation, like a mini cosmic universe. There's even a window on the top which, when you open, looked up to the stars of heaven. And God reveals the design in exactly the same way and in exact, well not exactly, but in a similar amount of detail as he did to Moses and the tabernacle. And as he did to Solomon, David and Solomon, with the temple. God showed Moses a vision of heaven and then Moses was to write down the instructions of how the tabernacle should be built. And in the same way, God reveals the instructions to Noah in chapter 6 of how to build this ark. It has to look a specific way. It has to be built a specific way. Why? Because it's a type. It's a message. It's a prototype. It's a picture of heaven. And notice the detail God gives to Noah in Genesis 6. Do you know, sometimes Genesis, um, sometimes a bit frustratingly, we'll, we'll just skip by whole swathes of the History. You can see there must be big gaps. Um, and yet, when it comes to something like the tabernacle, it'll be chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter on the minutest detail. And why? Why the detail here with the ark? Why did it have to look like a very strange house on water? Because all these things have typological significance. They're all pointing to something greater and bigger. God is building this ark as a house, his house. The architect and builder of the eternal temple city provides Noah with plans for a symbolic copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Now that's what the writer of the Hebrew, Hebrews argues about the tabernacle, that these are all copies, shadows, copies of heavenly things. And this is what's happening here with the ark. God gives the instructions. Hebrews 11 verse 10 um, 
speaking of Abraham, said that Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, God's the architect. And so in this brief time that Noah was in the ark with these animals, in this place designed to look like the house of God, we have a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. A picture of this city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Does that make sense? So the ark typifies this last judgment, but it also typifies that which comes after the judgment, the new heavens and the new earth. But of course it's not just the ark which is symbolic. It's not just the ark which is the sign of the consummation of the kingdom of God. But it's also the human occupants of the ark. The people that were sailing in the ark. They are typologically significant too. And just like the church on earth, the reality of the eternal city of God can't be separated from the citizens of that city. The new Jerusalem, the consummated city of God in Revelation 21 is identified as, not with, but as the bride of Christ. The final new Jerusalem, which is another picture of the eternal state coming down from heaven is described as the church, as the new Jerusalem, as the bride of Christ. I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And in the ark, the occupants are a picture of this glorified mankind, as they will be in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the final state, redeemed men and women will exercise dominion over the creatures and subdue the realm of nature, which was always man's true destiny. It was always Adam's destiny to, to be in dominion over, over nature, over the wind, over the storms, over the sea, over the land, over the animals. That was his destiny, but he failed. But because of Christ's obedience, there will come a day where man will fulfill that mandate that God gave. And we will exercise that dominion and power and reign where? In the new heavens and the new earth. And the scene within the ark, what's happening in that ark, in that journey, is a picture of the dominion and control and power and reign that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth over subhuman orders of life. Noah had control, he had dominion, Noah and his family, over the vegetable kingdom and over the animal kingdom. So imagine all these wild animals. Um, in an enclosed space, 
not killing each other, not killing the people on the boat. The point about this is, you see, you can spend so much time thinking about, you know, how can all this be possible and about fossils and geology and, and all, and that's completely missing the point. We, we, we have to accept this is history, but that, that isn't really the main point of it at all. It's what it's saying spiritually, theologically, what God is revealing of itself. You see, the whole point of this is that within this ark, there was kingdom peace. There was a reign of God's people in all creation. Nature's obstacles have been overcome. The disorders of nature have been overcome. They were victorious over the flood. Finally, man had complete dominion. Dominion over the world animals. They were quite as lambs. The lion literally was laying down with the lamb in the ark. That would all have happened. I mean, we're only talking, this is a type, you don't see. This is the last. But all this would have happened if Adam had not fallen. But here in the ark, the lion is lying down with the lamb. Man is at peace with creation. And this is a picture. This is what Peter is arguing with. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. It's a wonderful thing that um, God's plan um, of salvation is a... Um, you know, I, I, it's really far beyond just you and me. It's a cosmic universal, it has universal cosmic implications. Um, Romans 8 verse 19 and 20 is talking about the this cosmic aspect of this hope. It says for the earnest expectation of the creature Really, a better translation is the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature of creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself, creation itself, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. You see, I won't, I won't expand on that, but you see how even the animals, even the rocks, even the creation, they're all in frustration because sin is coming into the world, but as the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in, that cry of creation, that craving for God to reign, for sin to be rid, for righteousness to dwell in the kingdom of God. There will be a great cry of joy. Creation is waiting in frustration, 
groaning. And the universe will be set free. It will be recreated. And will usher in the consummated kingdom of God. And this, my friend, is all of grace. God designed the ark, gathered the occupants in closely, guided them through the flood, and brought them to the new world. It's all of grace. And this achievement of mastery over nature signifies what redeemed Christians' physical glorification will ultimately do for him and because we're going to be transformed into the likeness of our glorified Redeemer. And in the final state, you and I will transcend the disorders of nature and there will be peace. There will be dominion. We will enter into the uh, promise that was given to Adam and to Eve. The flood story testifies that there will be a redeemed people of God who will be brought through the cataclysm of the last judgment. They will be gathered to God by bodily resurrection and rapture. They will be recreated through glorification and we will be the new mankind in Christ Jesus. And we will be crowned with him as co-heirs with Christ and reign with him forever and ever in the eternal city of God, which is called the New Jerusalem. That's an awful lot of that. And it's an awful lot to understand. But dear friends, that is the end of the story. It's the end of the Bible story. Prefigured in many types, and we'll come across this time and time again. But here in the flood, in this ark, there's this little mini picture. The tabernacle was another, perhaps a bigger picture. Temple, even a bigger one. All speaking of this day, this last day, when Christ will come, there will be a final judgment, and the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in, and we will be raised to new life. We will share in God's glory in a resurrected body. You and I need to focus on this final hope, this real hope. This gives us a bit of perspective, doesn't it, on life, on our current trials and problems. This is, this puts everything into perspective. This world is fading, it's, it's, it's going to be decreated. De God's reserving it for um, fire. You see, people today are spending all their time saying we must conserve the world, we must preserve the world, we must save the world. But you know, there's only one person who's reserving the world, it's God. He's doing it already. And he's reserving it for fire. To decreate it and then to recreate it. Now I don't understand there's continuity and discontinuity between this world and, and the new one. I don't, I 
understand the bands there, but this there'll be something very recognisable about this current world in the new world. It's a new heaven and new earth, but also it's be something very new. Uh, we get a clue of, 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 of that in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the seed going into the ground, not really looking much like the final plant that grows, but it's just organically the same thing. And this world, like some kind of burnt seed in the fire, will emerge, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, wherein will be nothing but righteousness. And that's your hope and my hope. And Peter says, in the light of all that, what manner of person will we to be? We need to understand this as a great incentive to live the Christian life. Um, it's a great comfort, but it's a great spur and encouragement to live the Christian life. There's a there is a final state coming that is perfect. And I think it means the promise of this eternal state tells me that we mustn't be governed by this present evil world. We mustn't be governed by its thinking, by its spirit, by its attitudes. We need to understand that we are citizens not of this earth, but of that earth. The eternal state is our ultimate dwelling place, our true home, our citizenship is in heaven. And the more our hearts are drawn to that, the more they are weakened away from this old world. This present world should not govern our lives. Jesus spoke in a rather amusing question he was asked about um, in, the, in, the, in the kingdom who would be, who would marry this woman who had seven husbands Jesus said that there is no marriage in heaven so it's a stupid question but he spoke of this world he spoke of this world where there is marriage and then he spoke of that world where there is no marriage where we are as the angels of heaven there is this world and there is that world and our focus needs to be on that world because the more we focus on that world, the more useful we will be in this world world meaning age our true and ultimate home is not this world Christ died to deliver us from this age he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world According to the will of God our Father. You and I, before we were Christians, used to walk according to the course of this world. But now we're Christians, we're not to do that. We're not to walk according to its course. We, 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 we had a certain attitude, we had a certain spirit within us, with a small s, that worked in us and made us children of disobedience. Disobedience was natural to us. We just loved it, didn't we? We, 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 we like took, it, took to it like water. 
disobeying God, rebelling against Him. But now we have the Holy Spirit with a capital S, and we we have to not no longer to walk according to the course of this world, but according to that world, with our eyes as pilgrims walking and marching towards that world. Christ died to deliver us. He redeemed us from this evil world. Delivered us from this evil world and he will translate us into a new world where there is nothing but righteousness. Peter says, live therefore a holy life. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, he says in chapter 3, verse 11. Dear friends, you and I have a great hope. As we study the Bible, let us contemplate these little pictures, little images that God gives us of that final, glorious, eternal step which we as pilgrims are marching to. Let us set our thoughts upon that. Let us walk closely with the Lord and be holy in all behaviour and conversation let us be encouraged and encourage each other while it is day the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again coming soon and let us work while it is still day Amen. Amen. Amen.